0: When I started at the National Security Agency, well, I edit that part. Here we go, let's start again. <clears throat> Take two. <laughs> yeah. We just had
1: Michael Kaufman here
0: in that chair. Well, if Mike's already been here, I, I have nothing to worry about. <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey Slavic Connection listeners, this is Taylor. And today, Misha and I got the pleasure to speak with Gavin Wild, a senior fellow in the Technology and International Affairs program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. We spoke with Gavin about the differences between information and cyber warfare, how Russia structures its information warfare activities and in institutions, and whether Russia is really as good at information warfare as portrayed. We hope you enjoy this episode. let's go ahead and get started thank you so much for being on the podcast today it's really an honor to have you and I just wanted to kind of start out by asking if you can kind of give an overview of what is cyber warfare Um, for the listeners that may have heard of cyber warfare they may be thinking hacking or these Really grandiose operations in dark rooms with sunglasses on, banging away to the computer. So can you give us kind of the landscape of what cyber warfare is?
0: At least from a a U.S. conception, let's say, or how I I imagine if you asked 15 different U.S. scholars or, or practitioners, you'd get 15 different answers. But the way I would explain it is cyber warfare is the idea that you can use cyber means to achieve some kind of effect that might rival or enable a kinetic effect by either disrupting or manipulating or denying an adversary some access to data or uh, the ability to communicate using some kind of cyber means. Mm -hmm. So some kind of information or communication technology to deny the adversary the same. And I would say often um, it's difficult for folks to distinguish between cyber activities that are are designed to kind of perform intelligence or reconnaissance or surveillance, which is essentially look but don't touch, and the more kind of offensive cyber operations, which I would have been under cyber warfare, which are designed to have some kind of effect, to achieve some kind of objective above and beyond merely having a better uh, sense of what your adversary is doing, saying, or seeing. So does
2: cyber warfare include information warfare, or are these two separate concepts that kind of have an overlap?
0: So that's an interesting academic question. I think um, there's probably some dispute on the spectrum. I think that's kind of the genesis of where I I started to get really interested in it from a Russian perspective, because in Russian strategic culture, they're kind of part and parcel under one umbrella of information confrontation or information struggle, if you will, where there's kind of the psychological aspect and the technical aspect, and they are kind of symbiotic. I would say, in at least the U.S. or Western conception, they've been somewhat different—different different disciplines, different kinds of uh, certainly training. But I would say over the last five years, uh, five six years, certainly since twenty sixteen, I think uh, the U.S. and NATO and a lot of Western uh, militaries have started to put them under the same umbrella as well, in kind of in terms of how they think about information warfare, quote unquote. So,
2: how did you? End up focusing on cyber. You have a very, uh, you have a lot of experience in the private sector, also in the public sector, dealing with the region and just this field. So, how, what brought you to this field, and why did you choose this?
0: Uh, so, I started out as a Russian linguist uh, working for the the government, and and was originally when I started out, I did a short stint uh, at the FBI, and then started at the National Security Agency, and was originally really reticent and I would say probably (laughs) resentful of the idea that I had to learn so much tech uh, and learn so much about cyber because that's just an innate part of of signals intelligence. It's just a very technical field. So you're involved
2: Um, in SIGINT. Correct.
0: And so understanding how SIGINT works and understanding how cyber works was I kind of begrudgingly went down that road. When 2016 uh, kind of happened, and I, I got, I was fortunate enough to be able to work on assessing what Russia had just done in the 2016 election. Having to learn that lingo and collaborate with colleagues that were in those very technical fields, and they were translating, you know, very technical stuff to me, and I was in turn translating a lot of Russian strategic Jeez. culture. I found it was advantageous for me to be able to kind of understand the lingo and and the terminology and the tradecraft behind so much of that technical work that was going on. And in turn, they found it advantageous for me and some of my kind of Russianist colleagues to be able to translate a lot of the the geopolitical backdrop and the, the Russian strategic cultural context behind so much of this behavior. And in that kind of fusion of disciplines, there was so much power to be able to explain uh, not only what was what had just happened, but to try and maybe inform the, the decision-making going forward on how to deal with it. That was kind of the entree point for me into this really opaque and thorny area of cyber conflict, but that's kind of been where I've parked uh, ever since then.
1: How does Russia define its cyber warfare, and does it include information warfare, and what kind of entities guide Russia's policy in that realm?
0: So I would say under the Russian rubric of information confrontation, you have what are called information technical effects, and that's where I think they would probably bin cyber warfare as such, Um, although they they tend not to use that word uh, much in their doctrine or their policy papers. So they think of information far more holistically uh, than I think a lot of Western security thinkers do. And then you'll have to remind me the second half of that question. Well,
1: the United States has like cyber command and everything is pretty hierarchical versus in Russia, many things are also informal, or we don't know about, but you're the expert, so, so you, you know. You know. Uh, so how, do, how does Russia structure its kind of uh, institutional uh, hierarchy in that realm?
0: Right. So I think the majority, the bulk of the kind of cyber know-how has uh, historically rested within the, the GRU and the FSB, uh, the latter with a far more domestic focus, although they do, do uh, perform some expeditionary Kinds of operations abroad, but I think the bulk of the kind of technical prowess and sophistication on offensive cyber operations has rested within the GRU. Um, I think the misconception that sometimes that leads a lot of us on the Western side to uh, to make is assume that yes, the GRU falls under kind of the MOD military construct, but in the Russian kind of system, the GRU has an awful lot of autonomy. They kind of jealously have guarded those cyber that kind of cyber know-how and that talent and that sophistication has by and large been wielded the way we would technically think in terms of an intelligence agency, kind of for subversion and disruption. It's only relatively recently within the past few years that there's been some thinking in Moscow about how to kind of harness that sophistication and that know-how in service of a military set of objectives. But historically, that's kind of created some parochialism and some turf uh, warring between the services and the agencies because uh, for a long time, the FSB, the MVD, the GRU kind of jealously guarded their capabilities and didn't want the military as such, the conventional military arms to have to play any real role in that. So I think we're still seeing and have seen in in Ukraine's, uh, in the context of the, the Russia's war on Ukraine, the Inefficacy that that kind of turf warring has now brought about, because it's hard to tell where the GRU ends and the kind of um, conventional military command begins, and even within the hierarchy, there you have, according to the Estonians, a, an entirely a directorate within the general staff that's in charge of kind of signals intelligence or cyber cyber enabled surveillance intelligence and reconnaissance for military objectives. But then you also have uh, what looks like the another directorate uh, that's kind of designed for information warfare. And we're seeing maybe some of the shortfalls of that organizational construct uh, come to the fore in Ukraine. And when you say information warfare,
1: do you mean disinformation?
0: Yeah. So that's where information warfare more broadly from a, from a Russian perspective, I would say is, is that fusion of the technical side and the cognitive psychological disinformation uh, side of the house as well.
2: So, in any type of warfare, especially for the conventional warfare, you typically will have a battle and there's a success if you win or a loss if you lose. Um, Even in guerrilla warfare, you typically know if the conventional army has won or lost. And calling cyber conflicts and whatnot, cyber warfare, is there a consensus on how to measure successes or wins and losses in the battles in the cyberspace?
0: Uh, I would say far from a consensus, there's probably a a deep and abiding debate, uh, at least among a lot of academics and some practitioners about, that's ongoing to this day about that very issue of how do you measure success? Is it kind of I would call maybe the John Stockton theory of, of cyber warfare of what did it enable? What did it assist? What was it in? uh, And was it a contingent, but without not aspect of a battlefield gain or a geopolitical gain Mm -hmm. on the other side? I think there are folks that are, are would kind of measure it from a less kind of a more austere perspective of did it have the effect? Did it have any effect at all? That was kind of, noticeable to the adversary, noticeable to the outside. I think a lot depends in how you measure it, but I think that's probably one of the drawbacks of thinking of the information domain or cyber domain as a warfighting domain because in every other domain you have the laws of physics that prevail and you have a lot of observability and you have- Not the
2: laws of Python. Right,
0: right. So, and the ability to do battle damage assessment and the ability to kind of say, uh, in fact, I was in Tallinn uh, just earlier this year, and it's interesting when you talk to a lot of folks in military cyber commands that kind of pointed out that if I received the order to fire, and you know, to, uh, for a for a, a cyber uh, operation from my commanding officer, and I didn't, and I, but I just said that I did, like the commanding officer would have very little way of knowing. Whether or not, to, you know, that, and that's different from a cannon, that's different from a gun. That,
2: right. Or even taking stock of the munitions that you've suspended. Right. Or just the raw resources. Exactly.
0: And we talk about that a lot, too, of, you know, off the shelf or kind of capabilities held in reserve. One of the drawbacks of, of cyber warfare in, in so far as it exists as a concept is that it's very difficult to kind of keep stuff on the shelf for a rainy day because it's... You have to keep sustained access and, and there's no guarantee of, of efficacy or durability over time. And there's also no guarantee that you can mobilize it quickly and reliably according to kind of battlefield demands. And so that's where it gets kind of tricky for, for militaries in particular. And how do successes in
1: cyber informational warfare translate into the real world? So let's say Russia attacked Ukraine on and, and February 24th. And there are reports that before that, they've launched a massive uh, cyber attack on all of Ukraine's infrastructure. Did that cyber attack, for instance, contribute to Russian success? Would would Russian invasion be even less successful if that cyber attack did not occur?
0: I think there's probably even a third option, which I would argue for, is did it actually, was it actually counterproductive? Um, Most of what, most of the cyber attacks that Russia has lobbed against Ukraine since the outbreak of the war, with a few major exceptions, have been aimed at civil infrastructure with the intended effect of grinding down public morale and leadership morale and kind of creating disorientation and, and eroding morale and all of those things. And in fact, I would argue that those attacks have, have backfired in that there's been such a digital rally round the flag effect both within Ukraine and among Ukraine's backers, from a cyber perspective, that Ukraine is now much more resilient, arguably among the most resilient uh, infrastructures on Earth, I would argue at present, uh, from a cyber perspective, because of this expectation that Russia was going to uh, undertake uh, all of these operations and has. That's not dissimilar, I would say, from a lot of scholarship about air bombardments in previous wars, where the, it's very easy and simple for military leaders and national security leaders to assume that we can bombard the civilian population into submission. And in fact, that tends to have the the reverse effect. They're less uh, demoralized than they are angry. And they less, they're rather than losing trust in their political leaders, they rally around them, whether that's uh, the Brits in World War II, whether that's um, North Vietnamese, etc. like most of the studies show that that kind of morale bombing is less effective than a lot of folks would hope. but leaders turn to it because it has it's relatively easy.
2: So, it seems like it would be more simple to launch cyber attacks from a centralized state. Like, if you're authoritarian, you have full control over the, a single narrative in your nation that you're trying to push out. You can orchestrate a cyber attack following that single narrative. What are the advantages of democratic societies in cyber warfare with that freedom to have different ideas and almost organic? truth-telling, an organic checking
0: of narratives from below? So I think there's a degree of complexity and federation that comes not only from like a technical perspective, but from a cognitive one. Um, so comparing the kind of runet approach to, to the one that, to a more open architecture means that there's a whole lot more complexity and a whole lot fewer kind of can't-fail vulnerabilities across a given system. Um I think Martin Lebiki from uh, National Defense University wrote that like that cyber weapon can only be as effective as the you know, simplicity of its target and whether that's a society or whether that's a uh, a network. I think autocracies just have have to have a lot more these prefer but
2: also from a propagandizing point of view like Perhaps this isn't even cyber warfare. This is just cyber propaganda and disinformation. And as you mentioned before, the lines are blurry. And even if there's a line drawn, there's no consensus on the line or whether there should even be a line. But in the propaganda space, you know, democracies innately do have some sense of like internal debate that is allowed. Freedom of expression, freedom of ideas, freedom to disagree and to hash out those ideas. And some actors have characterized that as a weakness because different narratives that may not be true become the main narrative. For example, Ds in Iraq. And Obama, as a senator, was the only senator that said there's no proof. And then he was written off as an Iraq sympathizer. And lo and behold, history comes out and he was the only one that was ultimately correct. So in democracies, we do have competing narratives, but are there any strengths to that in fighting against disinformation campaigns?
0: I think one of the things that this is probably why I'm a bit of a skeptic of the idea of thinking about information warfare from a narrative perspective as a uh, a coherent strategy or necessarily one that we ought to either rely on or be uh, extremely fearful of, because Of course, in autocracies, there's a relative ease of kind of setting the framing and setting the terms of the discussion and kind of cementing the Overton window, if you will, around a certain set of issues. In democracies, even governments don't have that. Even influential figures may not necessarily be able to capture and hold attention or uh, maintain a narrative for long. And so there's a whole lot of kind of organic, zeitgeisty, indefinable, and emergent. Kinds of phenomena that are, I think, inherent to open democratic systems where free expression can reign, that it's very hard to kind of assume that there's a wieldable, that influence operations or information operations can be uh, conducted with any skill, A, and B, with any reasonable expectation of, of some kind of impact. That's obviously going to be a lot easier within an autocracy, but I would argue even there, there's an, a lot of limitation. I think in Russia's case, it stems very deeply from all the way back to kind of Bolshevism and this idea that the new Soviet person or the new Soviet uh, uh, man can be molded out of their, primarily out of their exposure to some kind of media. And that, you know, Stalin even bought into this idea that... that
2: Pavlovian.
0: Yeah, that that there's a behaviorist kind of... Uh, input in and output out kind of uh, relationship between humans and media that would be very, that we could-
2: Like a straight cause and effect line.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And I think that far from the, the advent of a lot of advanced technology and, and computation and a lot of the discussions around cybernetics and that kind of thing in the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, lent a lot of thinkers, uh, Kolmogorov and Lefebvre and, and a lot of others in the in that era to kind of say oh this is the pathway into perfecting this idea into perfecting this tradecraft of molding societies and and identifying the laws of of human nature that that they believed existed and so my concern right now in so far as there's a lot of focus on russian information warfare is that we acknowledge that there's this kind of tautological self-reinforcing way of thinking about human perception that's long been present in russian strategic culture recognizing it without necessarily adopting it ourselves um, because there's a certain degree of kind of scientism behind it and that drifts ever more closely to kind of this magic mind control um conspiratorialism that has a lot of what I would call unfalsifiable conjectures that border on magic at the, at the end of the day, and so, insofar as we lump all of that into our broader conception of you know information warfare, I think there's some danger of both overestimating our enemies and uh, adopting some of that hubris ourselves kind of a follow up to that is there a
2: danger in characterizing the field as you know cyber warfare or you know in propaganda? as the people's minds as subjects, because it seems like inadvertently, at least in popular media, especially with the rise of like QAnon in the United States, for example, around Thanksgiving, there's always funny articles about what to do with your crazy uncle, you know, things like that. For That's a silly example, but truly kind of this distilling or diluting of a very complex cognitive process on how somebody comes to their worldview into that person watched this one media stream where they subscribed to this one channel on Reddit, therefore they are this backwards crazy person. And are we in danger as a, like, Western society in America more specifically of kind of inadvertently adopting that kind of Pavlov-like analysis just in how we're thinking about these um, complex issues?
0: I think that is absolutely spot on. And I think that that tendency has always been there particularly from the point of view of governments and elites that kind of view their polities as an object to be protected. There's this kind of idea of this ontological security that my the, the society's broader sense of itself and its sense of routine and its sense of predictability of daily life as a thing that has to be protected. And that's a good thing. It's natural, it's rational, but unchecked, it, it can often lead to kind of a bit more of a technocratic paternalistic, dare I say, authoritarian way of thinking about protecting the public, even back in the 20s and 30s, as offensive to our modern day conception of democracy as it might have been, you know, Walter Lippmann and and Harold Laswell and some of those other early thinkers about propaganda viewed mass manipulation of the public by the elites and and democratic governments as a feature of democracy, that it was their kind of solemn duty to interpret and lead the public to these-
2: Eternalistic Very democracy. much so,
0: yeah. But the flip side of that is it kind of assumes that the public are a bunch of blank, blank slates, empty vessels, rootless, disinterested sheep that can just be pulled to and fro. And I think that assumption itself is a little bit probably equally corrosive to the idea of democracy or trust in institutions that we're saying is at most threat because it reduces, again, these very complex phenomena. It distracts probably from a lot of the real world policy responsibilities that leaders have to to their publics.
1: Coming back to Russia's kind of version of information warfare, do you think that having many people from FSB, former KGB, in leadership right now in Russia, including as a president of course, contributes to a proliferation of information warfare and to its effectiveness against Russia's own population and also outwards?
0: I would say yes because of the inherently conspiratorial mindset and will to control, if you will, of that's kind of inherent to certain intelligence agencies generally, but certainly to those particular intelligence agencies and the pedigree, the KGB pedigree that they that they emanate from. So that kind of fixture—not to essentialize, you know, Moscow—but I think it's fair to say that there's a that that's a bit of a fixture within strategic culture there that the conspiratorial mindset lends you both. Uh, an outsized sense of hubris about what can and cannot be controlled through um, these covert operations, but also an outsized sense of danger around every corner that may or may not comport with reality. I would argue, though, that that makes them less successful at information operations abroad because as societies, targeted societies, become more inured uh, to the tradecraft and the novelty starts to wear off, It becomes easier to detect it becomes a little bit more cartoonish in hindsight and everyone whether on the on the psychological and the technical end ends up kind of stealing their own defenses as a result and as you zoom out and say well what did that accomplish for moscow what was the was there a piece of ground captured or a geopolitical uh, objective that was achieved through these information operations and i would argue In a a lot of arenas, the the reverse has actually taken place. So much of the information bombardment of Ukraine has had the absolute backfiring effect, uh, certainly since 2014. And so at some point you have to ask, well, to what end was all of that effort?
2: This is a slightly related related question, but it's also a little bit different. Have you seen in your observations about what's going on in uh, Russia, is there any cyber mercenarism going on? Is anybody using third parties to try to conduct cyber warfare in any capacity? Or is it mainly
0: state actors that are launching cyber attacks? So I think um, Chivka, Wagner had started to spin up, at least put a name on the box of kind of some, you know, cyber front Z, I think it was called. Or my sense, however, in terms of like the sophistication is a lot of uh, low level DDoS attacks, a lot of kind of disruptive, but not necessarily decisive activity that is probably not very well coordinated with anyone in the state. It makes for good propaganda fodder. It creates this perception that there's you know, cyber mercenaries abound in Russia, and they're going to target Ukraine and, and Ukraine's backers. And, and perhaps they did, but again, it's—I think—I would argue on, on pretty much all fronts. Cyber mercenaries, by and large, have a a larger um, you know, propaganda value necessarily than they do a technical one.
1: How does Russian leadership or Russian leadership in the information warfare space? How does they view technological innovations? Uh, for instance, as the advent of a i do they try to integrate it into their operations in any way?
0: I don't know that I've ever seen any use of a i at a broad scale that i would that I would attribute to kind of a a mass adoption at scale by the state
1: for instance, like would it be hard to convince President Putin that a i would be more in the long run it would be more effective at achieving russia's goals because he might have an older a tradition conception of what information warfare is.
0: So President Putin has made, at least publicly stated that, you know, that whoever gains the the edge on AI will kind of be lead the 21st century or something to that effect. I don't know the degree to which that reflects his own kind of personal views. He's kind of reputed to be a technophobe and, and a little bit um, aloof from a lot of the most uh, highly technical stuff. I think The biggest application of AI that I've seen is this in in this space, uh, the information warfare space is kind of the proliferation of of deep fakes and cheap fakes. But don't think it's necessarily it's reinventing a pretty uh, reinventing the wheel in in an impactful way. Like the uh, the fake of uh, President Zelensky was pretty easily detectable, I think, for most folks. And again, that cuts to the question I think that's inherent to a lot of the research into information operations like that is is it is it truly persuading the not already persuaded is it truly fooling those who don't already have an inclination to be fooled or and i think those are probably unanswerable questions more broadly but uh probably remains to be seen how much the the deep fakes how much impact those end up having on the on the broader environment
2: going viral on twitter doesn't necessarily mean that that many people actually changed any minds. So it's a hard metric for sure. Um, So why is it important to study cyber issues, specifically information warfare, propaganda? And a follow-up to that, why is it important to study this specifically from the Russian perspective? Like what makes focusing on Russia important?
0: I would argue probably that Russia has been the most experimental and has been the most rigidly dogmatic about information as a, as a as a tool, as an instrument, as a weapon, going back even into the czarist era. Um, and so that's why I think Russia is in particular a, a fascinating use case because there's so much effort at society building and effort at shaping the bounds of suasion and cognition and identity formation uh, that itself was very experimental for its own day, whether that's in the post-revolutionary period 1917, when broad swaths of the the then Soviet republics were themselves illiterate. And so there was a real nation building, if you will, that uh, in the Russian experience that took place first with the benefit of propaganda, but then later on with the benefit of these technological breakthroughs. And so that, for me at least, is why Russia is such a useful lens through which to view information warfare as as an area of study, As an extension, I think that's all it also gives me a greater sense of humility about what is perhaps outsized faith in what information and coercion and subversion can achieve from a in a geopolitical sense.
1: Maybe lastly, do you think uh, 2016 caused an overreaction uh, to Russia's cyber capabilities? That people overestimated what Russia can do, not only with its audience but also with American audience. And did you have to convince anybody that Russia was indeed even a bigger threat? Or
0: I would say broadly, yes, there was a, there was a uh, probably an overreaction, and we do a fair deal of um, mythologizing Russian cyber prowess that. May lend them far more credit than they're due but i also would say it much depends on how you define the threat the threat to critical infrastructure or the threat to you know from uh, unchecked ransomware actors acting out of russian territory like those are those that have real costs and they affect real lives and, and the degree to which that kind of activity is necessarily addressable or deterrable or resolvable through military or sanctions activity like i think remains to be seen but in that regard i would say our our response probably overemphasized the military component of it and underemphasized uh, a lot of the other tools in our toolkits whether that's law enforcement or diplomatic or export controls you name it but Um, I think we're making progress in that regard in the U.S. also by shifting the focus away from so much of the threat itself and more towards the resilience piece. In that regard, Ukraine's kind of offered a real model of assume that bad things are going to happen, assume that there will be breaches, assume that there will be disruptions, but put your focus on what will it take to reconstitute, how long will it take, what do you need to get back to, to good once that does happen, and I think that changes the policy conversation as well.
2: your time today and now is the time that if you want to give a plug to any cool projects or any developments you're excited about are you working on anything that you'd like to share
0: well no I have uh, a piece out of the Texas National Security review that's hopefully uh, forthcoming in the next couple of months that uh, covers some of the same ground so it might uh, um, with any luck it'll coincide relatively close to the the podcast but uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you about it
2: awesome thank you so much is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at
0: slobxradio.com. Thank you.
2: The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military
0: forces. Absolutely. It's actually not too far away because our the VP that uh, oversees the Tech and International Affairs program also oversees the nuclear program, so uh, we're, we're in the same kind of umbrella. So. And if slash when you're ever gonna see just taller.